0: You're listening to the Autism Weekly podcast. Each week, we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skabitsky. This week, we're joined by Ariana DeAngelis, the training manager at the Autism Project. She's on a mission to educate people worldwide about autism. From teachers to doctors to business people, with her background in special education and a commitment to continuous learning, Ariana is making a significant impact in the autism community. The topic for this week's episode is elopement and the Autism Project's grant with the Department of Justice. Ariana, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me, Jeffrey. It's great to be here.
0: It's it's my pleasure, and and we're talking about a topic today that honestly is probably one of the most fearful things that a parent will ever have to think about. Um, It hits beyond autism, but it happens frequently with the autistic population. And it's something that you never want to have to live through or think about or feel like you're not equipped for. But before we go into this, One of the things I love to be able to do is give our audience just a sense of, you know, what drove people into this field because it's such a passion and service-oriented profession. So tell us, you know, a little bit about what sparked your interest in autism to begin with.
1: Wow, thanks. That's a great question. And I will say I am here selfishly because I, I am so fulfilled by the work that I do so for that reason I am absolutely you know um doing this because I feel the most connected to the autism community and it started accidentally as so many things in life do I was at Holy Cross in Worcester College in Worcester and I my undergrad I was working on was uh creative writing very committed to being (laughs) being a writer And then by chance, I got an internship working at a school in Rhode Island during a summer program, working with autistic children. And it took me probably three days (laughs) to realize I wanted to change my major, my college, my career. Uh, I ended up changing schools, getting an undergraduate degree in developmental psychology, a master's in special education. And I started working in a school just for students on the spectrum. After about four years, I moved overseas because I wanted to see autism and see teaching through a different cultural lens. So I taught at an international school, then came back to the U.S., taught in private school, and now I'm here at the Autism Project, where I am just so privileged to learn at the feet of so many self-advocates, so many professionals and caregivers who are just passing on so much wisdom to me. I'm, I'm so grateful for that and allowing me to be a part of this community, which is, has made such a significant difference in my life. So I am my work as the training manager is simply to take all of the wisdom that my students and colleagues and, and people I've worked with have given to me and just paying it forward to others so that we can all learn more.
0: I love the fact that you that the script is flipped is that oftentimes <laughs> you think that you know I got into it to help others but okay. the fact is is that oftentimes what you're seeing is that you actually learn so much about yourself you grow and your heart just opens up I, I started in a just a completely different sort of field as well
1: yep. not creative
0: writing but a different field yeah but having that contact with the autistic community it really kind of made me start to kind of question, hey, you know what? What do I need to be doing differently? How can I be a part of creating more empowerment for everyone, not just those individuals? Um, And it sounds like you went through a similar journey, which is awesome, and the, the experience worldwide probably gives you a little bit more perspective on how to take all these interventions and broaden them across all the communities, even here in the U.S.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it changes. I always start my presentations when I'm presenting in person or on Zoom. I always say you're going to hear a lot of stories about my students today. Some of them are at my expense. (laughs) Some of them are a little bit amusing. Um, But I want everyone to know that my students have been and continue to be the greatest teachers of my life. And I always speak about autism from that perspective, And the cultural perspective, being overseas and working with so many families from different backgrounds, getting training, teacher training in other countries as well, completely, it really—it didn't necessarily shift the lens through which I understood autism itself, but it shifted the lens through which I understood different cultures' approach to understanding autism. At its most basic, we look at things like eye contact, where here in the U.S., we see Lack of eye contact, oftentimes people talk about it from a deficit-based perspective. But many cultures, making eye contact is considered disrespectful. So you really have to think about how all of these different lenses perceive autism, support autistic people, and take lessons from different cultures, different people, different self-advocates, and incorporate them into your own lens and into the own supports that you use.
0: Absolutely, and I mean today we're going to be talking about a topic that I think universally would be seen as something that needs to be looked at, uh, cared for, planned for, regardless mm-hmm. of where what your cultural outlook is. Absolutely. And that topic that topic is a, is elopement, and I mean maybe before we even go too deep into any of the the effects or the stories or the treatment for this sort of behavior it's getting an idea of what elopement is because it can be a a kind of confusing topic at times just because it's a word that isn't often used outside the behavioral world in the context we use it right but maybe you can give some um background to what elopement is and, and the significance specifically for the autism community
1: Absolutely. So you're right, there's so much confusion around the word elopement, because outside of autism, it's used in other contexts. So a lot of times when I bring it up, I have to start by defining it. Some people call it wandering, others might call it running away. But in truth, what elopement is, is it's when a child or adult leaves a safe and supervised area. And when we're talking about adults, that adult who's leaving that supervised area is one that requires supervision. So an individual who needs supervision in order to keep themselves safe, but leaves that supervised area, leaves that safety. And oftentimes when we're talking about elopement, we talk about it in really one of two different contexts. Either that individual is leaving that safe environment in pursuit of something. I want something. I want an object, a person. I want to explore my world. I want to go to water. I uh, want to go. Uh, my my cousin has a son with autism, a son on the autism spectrum, who oftentimes will elope either to find a pool to go swimming in, which is incredibly dangerous, we'll get to in a bit, or to find certain foods that he likes. So there's that, there's leaving to pursue something, or The other context in which we speak about elopement is when the individual leaves to escape something. They're leaving the environment to get away from something that is in that environment. So think about high anxiety provoking situations. Think about sensory challenges in that environment. Think about transitions. Perhaps it's a holiday and suddenly you have your entire extended family in your home. They're making a lot of noise. There's a lot of echo. Some of them maybe brought pets with them. It's chaotic. That person may leave the environment to escape that environment. So typically when we're talking about elopement, we're talking about it in one of those two contexts.
0: And both of those contexts, they would... If you're going to do it appropriately, if you're going to do it in a way where I'm communicating a need to escape Mm -hmm. or I planned a safe place to be able to escape to Mm -hmm. those are those are organizational skills. Those are planned skills. When you're seeing some of these stories in the news, it feels to me as if, you know, there there's a. A plan to engage in the escape sort of behavior, I need to get out of this, or the need to want to access something. But there's no real understanding of how I'm going to get there, what I'm going to do on that path, or even the distance or the the travel that would put me into some of these dangerous situations on the way to it. What are some of the traumatic events that have occurred historically, so that we can start to kind of look at the Big picture of why we're talking about this
1: Absolutely. before
0: we get into the the details.
1: Absolutely. So one of the things that I think is so important is that when we're talking about elopement as a behavior, that we remind ourselves that all behavior is communication. So what is this person communicating to us through this behavior, and how can we get to the bottom of what is triggering this person to engage in that elopement behavior? And just as you mentioned, Jeffrey, the majority of the time that that elopement is being engaged in, that person is not aware of the safety risks of engaging in that elopement. Whether that be exposure to the elements, I had the privilege of working with a young man who I started with him when he was two years old, working in his home, and some of that time, I mean, I was working 40 hours a week with he and his families over the summer. I was doing weekends when the family would go away, just he and I. And about, I would say, probably about two years into my work with him, his family started to contact me. I'd get a a text message from them in the morning saying, and I'm changing everyone's names (laughs) just for reference, so I don't uh, identify anyone here, but they would say, oh, Joe, um, Joe walked out the front door in the middle of the night last night with no clothes on, and the neighbor heard him outside and brought him back home. So we're get, I'm getting this text message at in the morning, but he's leaving at two o'clock in the morning, outside in the cold, not protected from the elements. And part of that can be, and I, I don't know about this specific case, but we also have to consider a child's sensory experience. Is that child hyposensitive to temperature? If so, he may not be reacting to, may not be feeling extreme temperatures in the same way. So a neurotypical child might open that front door, feel the 20 degree or 30 degree temperature and shut that front door again and go back inside because they feel that physical reaction. For him, he didn't feel that reaction. So he wasn't deterred by that and went outside. Now, thankfully, his family was very proactive with his neighbors. If you hear Joe outside, if you see Joe outside, please know he's not supposed to be out there unaccompanied. Please call me, let me know if it's safe, bring him home, all of those other components. So they were very proactive and we can certainly get into more of those proactive steps as well. Other components include traffic safety. Um, Many individuals will not be aware of traffic or not attending to traffic as they're crossing streets to get to their destination. And the most um, the most significant, though we're talking about a lot of significant contributors to danger, is drowning. So the National Autism Association, for example, they looked at, they did a study where they looked at people with autism or autistic people who were reported missing between the years of 2011 and 2016. So there were 808 people. Of those 808 people, and I I always hesitate, you can hear me taking deep breaths, I hesitate to talk about these things because it is such a difficult topic, but one that we have to talk about in order to address. Of those 808 people, 17% passed away. Of those 17% who passed away, 71% died of drowning. So we have to talk about water. We have to, if a person is missing, if an autistic person has gone missing, we have to start at water first. And oftentimes when I say start with water, people think rivers, lakes, streams. And yes, absolutely, we have to consider that. Pools, even in the winter, look under, I'm in Rhode Island, so we get some cold winters here. Look under pool covers. Don't dismiss the possibility that a person has gone to water in the winter. Start there first. So there are are so many different components of, of these dangers and there are a variety of different reasons for it, so we really have to be proactive. Proactive steps to prevent elopement, and then having pre-planned reactive steps in the event that an elopement occurs.
0: It's it's the scariest thing possible, and I mean you do see this in the news too frequently. And um, the irony around some of this, uh, for me personally, is that I've been involved with the autistic community for for oh, more than two decades, and My my aunt and uncle, who have nothing to do with the autism community, actually were part of one of these news stories where they found a child in the back of their woods who was just kind of sheltered up because they got into a situation and didn't know how to get out of it. So they were just sitting back there and they found their self-made shelter. So they were trying to problem solve, but there are specific skill sets. that. Of led to that situation, led to being stuck in a situation they couldn't get out of. Mm -hmm. And it could have been far worse than it ended up being because they were found safe. But let's talk about some of these skills because you all did a wonderful job in the Austin Project outlining some of the skills that are affected in emergency. But I'd also say these are some of the skills that might be at deficit that lead to maybe more severe. Um, challenges with elopement, and some of those are the planning and organizing, um, expression of or communication of what's going on, uh, Mm -hmm. managing emotional responses, so that just immediate need to escape. Um, Mm -hmm. You went through a whole list of them. I think that you all put out seven or eight different topics on this. (laughs) But um, maybe we can touch on some of those and put it into context of how that leads to more severe risk of the behavior being something that we never would want to see and could eventually be one of the news stories that are so sad over time.
1: Absolutely. Um, So when I talk about elopement prevention from the proactive perspective, my beginning sort of where we want to start is thinking about what the triggers are for the individual. As you said, what is it that's pushing that person or motivating that person to walk out that front door or to jump out that window or to hop that fence or however that person is leaving the safe environment. And so it really starts with the professional rather than the individual, the professional and the parents um, to operate as detectives and really look at the environment and what seems to be triggering the individual. Some of that for some of us is going to be data collection. Every single time there is an attempted elopement, we want to start by writing that information down. What was the time of day? Who was in the environment? What were the sounds, the smells? What was that person's schedule looking like? Is it always right before they're supposed to go to a specific destination? Any type of stressors that might be present. Where was, if that person did, um, I hate to use the word successful, but if the person successfully eloped, If they got to a particular destination, where was it? What did they do when they got there? So that we really start to understand as much as we can from a fundamental level why that elopement is happening. Once we have that information, it gives us a guide to next steps. So let's say sensory, for example, let's say that this is happening pretty consistently when an individual is overstimulated. Perhaps every time we turn on the hood, the vent over the stove, that sort of the suctions, the smoke out if we're if we burn something on the stove, that person appears to try to go out the front door. OK, now we have a clue. Now we know that there's a sensory challenge that is leading that person to escape the environment. Now, what proactive steps can we take? one, we're going to give that person access to headphones. Two, we're going to teach the skill of requesting a break. That's a skill that requires communication, identifying in oneself when that dysregulation occurs. And parents, professionals, and the individual themselves can work towards having that that sort of tool in their in their toolkit to say, okay, I'm hearing this noise. It's really dysregulating to me. I'm gonna request a break. So we've got sensory strategies available, we've got communication strategies available, and everyone's on the same page about what's leading to that challenge of elopement. So it really is, and it one of the things that I always emphasize, because as you had mentioned, Jeff, this is an extraordinary challenge for caretakers it can cause unbelievable stress for parents, um, for anyone who's in the environment trying to keep that person safe. And so providing these skills really is about a team approach. So often our families, our caretakers feel alone in this situation, feel like they're on an island, they're Anxiety is through the roof all the time. They're not sleeping because they're listening for the sound of the front door opening or the window opening. They're in a constant state of fight or flight and they don't feel they have anyone to turn to. So as a professional myself and as someone who trains professionals on a daily basis, I really feel that it's up to us to not only connect with the individual, to connect with the self-advocate, the autistic child or adult and figure out what's going on there, but to really form that connection with the family as well and to say, you're not alone. Let's work together. Let's look at the environment. You give me your insights. I'll give you mine. Let's figure this out together and let's put a plan in place. So that would be my first step. certainly. Yeah, to
0: well, the question. I mean, just when when you're describing this, around, I'm, I'm thinking from parental perspective right now, yeah. if I had a child who eloped and maybe they were safe at the end of the day. But I just went through that whole emotional cycle of feeling uh, lost, feeling like I have failed in some respect, even if that's not necessarily what happened. Um, Feeling like I have no control over the situation. I mean, all of these things that are resonating in me that might lead to anxiety over time, might lead to other things um mm-hmm. but i look at the byproduct of that what could occur after the fact and i'm thinking you know a lot of families probably lock down their house they create almost like this <laughs> imprisonment of well the only thing i can do is block up everything bolt everything make sure my child is always in the same exact room i'm in constantly Um, which I would imagine leads leads to less independence, less empowerment, and less opportunity for the family Mm -hmm. and for the child. Um, So, I mean, my immediate instinct is, okay, that's justified. That feeling Mm -hmm. is justified. But how do you start working back through that? Like, what do you do to be able to empower a family and Mm -hmm. empower a child simultaneously to mm-hmm. not have to enter into this imprisoned world of locks and barriers. Sure. After one of a the
1: trauma. apologies. Yes. One of the tricky parts. This is a tricky question to answer because in some cases those locks and barriers are necessary. There are individuals who will elope after and this my cousin is an example and just to give you a little context I reached out to him yesterday and asked permission to to tell all these stories and he sent me paragraphs and paragraphs of information it's his son is one of those examples he previously engaged in elopement behaviors regularly where for example twice in one day he eloped to Walgreens the pharmacy to get candy and soda the first time he eloped was at four o'clock in the afternoon The second time was at two o'clock in the morning. And when the first responders knocked on my cousin's door at two o'clock in the morning and said, is your son missing? He said, and again, he gave me permission to say this. He said, no, he's in his bed. And then his wife came out of his son's bedroom and said, panicked, of course, he's not there. And he had gotten out. The doors were locked. He had gotten out a window. So for him. Now he engages in elopement once every couple months, but it still occurs. And because of that, because it is such a threatening behavior in the sense of life threatening, safety threatening behavior, for many individuals, those locks, locks on windows, locks on doors, alarms are necessary. There isn't a way of avoiding that. For others, It really is a case by case basis and begins with just as we were talking about earlier, begins by fostering that communication, begins by assisting with that regulation so that we figure out what it is about the individual that's causing them to escape, if that's the motivation or what it is that the person is seeking that we can provide them again, through communication, if they request that uh, that item or that experience, that we can provide it in a safe way or that we have alternatives that we can provide. If the individual is eloping and seeking food and very specific foods, can those foods be provided in the home? Can we create a communication system if the person uh, currently doesn't have access to one where they can request those tastes, those textures, and we can do it in that way in a safe environment? So the, unfortunately, for some, avoiding that locked, alarmed situation is not possible for others. And we still don't want to abandon communication, self-regulation, all those different components. But for others, that will be absolutely a way of um, reducing that elopement. For some, though, we do have to remain vigilant.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the need for some of the behavioral skills and just the to empower somebody to be able to voice themselves and kind of engage and, and assent to whatever's occurring or withdraw when necessary from environments <laughs> is so Absolutely. important. Um, Absolutely. But I'd love to hear your perspective. I mean, you mentioned uh-huh. alarms. And mm-hmm. um, before we go down the path of first responders, because I do want to get there, because oh, that's honestly something that is the next layer, because once somebody has eloped, you need a community to help support. But yes. Prior to the elopement, actually getting outside of specific areas, are there technologies that are out there? I think of like in my head, I'm like, well, when I lose my iPhone, I can set it up that if it leaves the geography, I know that it's left the geography. Like, I mean, it's, I know it's not that simple, but is there something similar?
1: Absolutely. And, you know, you joke about your iPhone, but some people do use AirTags, the Apple AirTag as a way of um, having that GPS. Uh, device. So if the child, let's say, puts their winter coat on or is in their coat, the air tag's in their pocket, or they put their shorts on, the air tag is in their pocket. If they leave the environment, they're able to be tracked. There are lots of other devices out there that are designed specifically for elopement. There are bracelets, anklets, a variety of different tools and strategies. Um, The challenge with those is in the event that the person will not tolerate wearing a device I have worked with students who have and again my cousin's son is is one such gentleman who will remove them either cut them out off of if it once there was a bracelet cut it off his wrist or tear it off um, I have known of families that have tied the devices to the individual shoes so it's part of and tied through the laces of the shoes um, I've also known of families who have sewn air tags into the clothing. So there are official devices for elopement. There are also, again, an air tag is used for a variety of different things, but it can be used for this as well for that tracking component.
0: And I think that those are those are so important. not not that it stops the elopement from occurring, but it it helps to mitigate the risk afterwards is that you know that, hey, you know, what I need to be, out there looking at this point because I've been alerted. Um, And that might lead to is that you all worked really hard at the autism project to be able to receive a grant through the Department of Justice and maybe giving us a little bit of background about that grant, because I think that's where some of the discussion of what we're talking about leads to is helping to educate others and creating a community of interveners. But um, can you give us some guidance on this?
1: Absolutely. So we were privileged to receive a grant from the Department of Justice to promote safety in the autism community, And that safety in this particular instance is twofold: one, elopement and safety during emergencies, and the other safety around self-injurious behavior. So the focus here when we have um in our elopement, we have elopement and community safety slides at the end of every presentation that we do. And I do a lot. <laughs> I do a lot of presentations all over the country and all over the world and we talk about elopement with professionals, with parents. Um, and when I say professionals I mean education professionals, medical professionals, even those that work in elder care and a variety of different settings, museums, um it, you know, you name it. <laughs> We've probably trained folks from that from that area. And everybody needs to understand autism, and everybody needs to understand elopement. Because as I said, it shouldn't just be a responsibility of the family. They need a community around them to support them and help them through this this challenging situation. So as as such, we talk about we talk about elopement in a variety of settings, and one of the misconceptions, or are many misconceptions about elopement. One of them is that it's a home problem, but elopement occurs not just at home. It occurs from schools, and I'm particularly passionate about that because I was a teacher for so many years before coming to the Autism Project, and I saw a variety of different responses to elopement in that setting, and I did have students who attempted to elope. So having that response, being prepared and talking about a very logical step by step of what we need to do in a school. Do you have a plan? Do you have a plan for this? Do you have a plan for that? Is everybody aware? Having those conversations, bringing people's attention to elopement in these environments is extraordinarily important.
0: Having that safety plan, no matter what community you're in, is is really important, especially if, you know, even if there's the minute risk that Mm -hmm. something or that somebody presents specific behaviors that could align with elopement. Um, When you were talking about just everybody being a part of it, you know, we most people nowadays know somebody with autism. That doesn't mean they know somebody who's autistic who elopes or I mean, it's such a broad thought on where the autism spectrum kind of falls, but we all will run into elopement at some point, potentially even outside the autism community, is that when you're looking at dementia, when you're looking at things like this, where it's aging sort of issues, is that it happens there. You see the alerts up all the time. Um, So it's something that we should all be aware of and kind of start to address because the last thing you wanna do is be ill-prepared when it does fall on you. Um, When you're looking at these safety components, um, one of the things that I think a lot of families are fearful of is first responders get out there and they're doing a wonderful job on trying to be able to find the child, trying to be able to assess what's occurring. That doesn't mean that the child or young adult or adult is gonna respond the way that you hope they would to a first responder, which means Mm -hmm. they have to be trained on how to manage this. This is a time where so much is going on in that child's mind. And so, what do you look at when you're training the first responders on, you know, say you are successful in being able to find this person with the help of the family, you know, kind of the history of where they go and what they might be fleeing to or fleeing from, and you mm-hmm. found them. What are you mm-hmm. then helping them to understand to do in those contexts?
1: Great question. And it, kind of harkens back to to discussions of compassionate care and the development of empathy. The first thing that we have to do when educating people about autism in general is establish, not that sympathy, that's not what we're talking about here, but empathy, this depth of understanding about the person's experience. So talking about, again, I, I keep going back to it, but it's such a huge component of many cases of elopement is that sensory piece. So let's say that we have located the individual and we approach with sirens blaring and 10 first responders, three of them with dogs running in your direction. That could be extraordinarily startling for the person with autism and can cause them to elope for a second time, unfortunately, because now they're escaping additional sensory challenges. How can we address the individual in a safe and therapeutic way so if we have found that individual how do we reduce that sensory stimulation turn those lights off turn the sirens off approach slowly Have a single point person, for example, who approaches the individual while others fan out and create a safe perimeter so that if the person does get up and start to run again, there's someone positioned there who's ready to assist. But we're not all converging on this individual because it can be frightening and overwhelming for that person. So really establishing empathy by talking about what autism is. And just as importantly, what autism is not. (laughs) There are, as you well know, so many misconceptions about autism, so many things that we learn through, you know, movies and TV shows and portrayals of people with autism. So really talking about how autism manifests across the spectrum and how those manifestations of autism can change even in a single individual minute to minute. So someone who... Um, whose family may assure you that that person has verbal communication may, when their anxiety is high, not be able to communicate verbally. So how can you use visual strategies, for example, to communicate with that person? If you need to ask them a question, how can you give them 30 seconds before repeating that question to them again, to give them that processing time. So we begin with that experience, with that discussion of how to really understand the individual with autism that you are searching for, and then how to approach that individual in the event that they're found.
0: The term individual there, I think, is probably the key focus is that, at least in my, in my mind, as I'm thinking through any of these situations, if I were in the role of the first responder the first thing i'd love to have and i don't know if we're teaching parents to do this but is to almost have like a little face sheet to tell me you know this is what really my child loves this is what they connect to this is how you approach them this is the one thing in the world that would always help them to de-escalate like having that already built out if I had a child who elopes, would be like yeah. the number one thing I'd be thinking to do.
1: <laughs> you are is correct. That, okay, <laughs> that is, I was going to yeah.
0: ask, as far as the parent toolkit, like, what yeah. is it that you're telling parents, you know, you've lived through this once, you don't want to have to do it again, get this toolkit together. What are some of the key mm-hmm. items that you suggest?
1: So what you can do is go to the National Autism Association. They have forms, but there are other uh, first responder organizations um, or towns, for example, that may have their own sheet. So depending on where you are in the US, check with your local first responders so they may have a specific form. But if not, the National Autism Association has forms you can download and fill out with all of that information. Um, Some of the Particulars there include how your child or the adults that you're supporting communicates, what their triggers are, what their particular high interests are. Some, again, when talking about how if we, when we, hopefully when, when we find the individual that has eloped, talking about their high interest playing music that might be their high interest, playing a TV show on your phone that's a high interest can help to connect with that person. So what are their high interests? What uh, medical conditions might we need to know about? Any of that can be really helpful. And then also, I would encourage families to meet with first responders beforehand. Take your child or the adults that you're supporting to the fire station meet the paramedics, meet the firefighters, meet any first responders, and make those connections in advance so that those individuals who are in the event of an elopement going to be responding to the elopement already are familiar with your child. In that event, also bring that sheet with you. Go over the information with them so that they know all of the specifics. And we actually do have a A very heartwarming story, actually, locally. So as part of that Department of Justice grant, one of the things that we provided to our local community were packets. Packets for parents, packets for teachers, and packets for first responders that had different information on them, depending on who you were that took one of the packets. One of our families who had a child who attempted to elope regularly filled out one of the forms that you had mentioned and brought it to their local first responders went over the forms with them and one of the things that it mentioned was that the child as a way of de-escalating when he was anxious or dysregulated was to mention elephants and so that child inevitably eloped was found by someone in the community they called their first responders the officer who had met the child already had gone over that sheet met the child in the community, mentioned elephants, and that was what uh, connected him to the child, and the child ended up going with him. So these procedures are extraordinarily important. And making sure that you have those connections in advance, that you've had these conversations in advance, really does make a significant difference to that response to elopement. And when I'm talking response, one thing I do want to emphasize here, don't wait. Call your first responders. What happens a lot of times, and, you know, again, it's a a tough topic to talk about, but families or whomever was the caretaker of the child at the time of elopement may wait to see if they can find them themselves before calling first responders in. You want to add as many people to your team as you can. So make those connections in advance. And then in the event of an elopement, call right away. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. And first responders say this all the time. Many of the folks that I've worked with say, if you call us and then 30 seconds later, you say, wait. He, she or they was in the backyard. You don't need to come. We'd rather you do that than wait too long. And and we lose that valuable time.
0: And I'd say that goes beyond families, I'd say, for schools, for clinics, for every community. Well
1: said. Well said.
0: I think oftentimes we we feel like, hey, you know what, I've, I've failed. I don't want to put that out there. But the real failure would be is not doing that next step of saying I need to get support. It's You didn't do anything necessarily wrong right. by right. the child figuring out a way outside of whatever it is. You learn from that and hopefully you right. fix that going forward. But the real wrong thing would be not asking for the support. Um you all have done so much work on being able to create these training materials being able to publish them train on them individually like you've done so many times mm-hmm. the um where can where can we access this or where can we help our communities start to look to say hey you know what let's not reinvent the wheel like this training Definitely. materials there
1: um, absolutely absolutely so there's a couple of different places that you can go One of them, again, the National Autism Association has an entire uh, library of resources on elopement. The different forms that I was mentioning, different handouts. We on our YouTube channel also have our roll call videos. And our roll call videos were done in collaboration with an organization here in Rhode Island called the Public Safety Special Needs Coalition. And it's a group of first responders and, and parents as well this parent also is a a mental health provider and they collaborate on forming those connections with not just the autism community but anyone in the community who's looking to form those connections with first responders and so one of the things that they shared with us is we need some short sort of almost bullet point list what do we do we get that call that call comes in that there's been even beyond elopement, there's been a car accident and the child or adult has autism, that on our way out the door or during our roll call, when we have those 10 minutes, we're watching that video to go over, here's what we need to know. Here are those bulleted lists. So our roll call videos are specifically targeted towards first responders. There are some, with. again, it's myself and first responders talking. And then at the very end, the end of that list, we also have self-advocates and families talking about what they want first responders to know. And I think so often, especially self-advocates, but families as well, they get left out of these conversations. It's the professional who comes in and says, all right, here's what you got to (laughs) do. X, Y, and Z. This is what's happening. This is why we need to make sure that all voices are heard. And even, you know, just recently, I have been going through all these books from different first responders, excuse me, first responders, different self-advocates, who actually talk about why they eloped. And they talk about things that I never would have considered. And I think, ah, that changes my perception. I'm going to do this differently. And then you look at another person and another person. So really making sure that we provide those insights to our first responders to see what it's really like, how it feels, is also very important. So you can go to our YouTube channel. You can go to our website under resources, we have several tabs on elopement, some for families, some for educators, and some for first responders, and you'll find links and forms and resources there as well.
0: I suggest that folks do go and, and take a look at those YouTube videos. You you all have done a wonderful job at being able to kind of really paint that picture, Um, but you can't do it all on your own. And, and one of the things that I'd love to be able to see whenever we have these discussions is the ability for our listeners to go out and continue the the mission, the movement. So how do you suggest folks can get involved or even support the the ongoing projects that you all have so that we have more safety and we have more awareness around some of these issues in the community?
1: That's a great question. And I think part of it is just sharing our resources. There are so many families out there who are struggling, so many um educators out there and professionals out there who are looking for resources and they just have no idea where to go and they have no idea what to provide. So starting by sharing the resources again that we have on our YouTube channel bringing those to the attention of your police, fire and paramedics in your local town so that we can start to get people proactively educated on these situations, sharing them with families, especially so outside of our Um, roll call videos. We also have, you mentioned, Jeffrey, the video on elopement and a family emergency plan, creating a family safety plan, family emergency plan. Share those with families. Another huge resource that we have here at the Autism Project is our family support team. And I am in awe of our family support team. They're all parents of children on the spectrum. Their children, many of them are now adults, (laughs) but some are still our little ones. And so you can reach out to any of our family support team. We have folks who speak both English and Spanish, and you can talk to a family who's been through this. Talk to a parent who's been through this, but who also has all the education and the training on elopement. Ask about next steps, find out this is my situation. Can you help me problem solve? Can you help me find professionals who can help me with this? Can you help me find resources? The thing that's so important for families to know is you are not alone. So often families feel alone in this. You have us. (laughs) You have the Autism Project. Give us a call. Reach out to us. We're here to help. We're here to provide resources for you. And uh, we've talked a few times, Jeffrey, about misconceptions around elopement. And uh, one of the big ones is that it's a failure of parenting you and again that's what creates a stigma around families and and all sorts of things. I have worked with individuals who have eloped from environments that had locks and fences and and alarms and the individual has disabled the alarm and built a tower of chairs to undo the lock that was 5 feet over their head and all sorts of things. Um this is not you know, necessarily a child who walks out the front door who should have been supervised and wasn't being supervised many times. There are so many steps that were taken um, to prevent that elopement and it still occurs. So reach out, get help. Um, We're here and there are many other organizations that are available to assist. And uh, yeah, just, just know that you're not alone in this.
0: Uh, every time I hear somebody talk about the family support teams and and they have them in a variety of different states mm-hmm. it's that shared experience plus yeah. the knowledge plus the empathy that comes with it exactly. it creates trust right off the bat. And I think that's such a valuable piece to learning is mm-hmm. being able to trust. Who it is that you're working with. And so I do suggest folks do reach out. Um, they get the training, they they find these support groups and they create these relationships to know I'm not alone. Others have experienced it and lived through it mm-hmm. and learned from it. And I can take mm-hmm. their knowledge or I can take their support and be able to do something very positive with it. Brian, um, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your your expertise and your knowledge and your passion with us today. And hopefully we can get you back on to talk about some of the other projects that, that you all have worked on. And, and we can have this uh, same discussion in the future, different topic.
1: That would be wonderful. And Jeffrey, thank you for the opportunity that, you know, if if we can help one family, if we can help one autistic person to stay safe, then you've given me a a, a opportunity of a lifetime. So thank you very much for that. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning
1: in, see you again next week.